0: morning, it opened to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. A number of months ago, we began our study through the book of Ephesians. This morning, we're concluding it, as the text we're looking at this morning is Ephesians 6, verse 10, through the end of the chapter. Again, I'll acknowledge, I'm mainly going to focus on 10 through 20. And if you're looking for that in the Red Bible, that's on page 979, 979. And if you will, I want to invite you to stand this morning, if you're able, so that we might honor the Lord's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Hear the reading of God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love and corruptible. Would you remain standing as we pray once more, Father, would you help me now to preach your word? I admit i in fact like Paul, boast of my own weakness. Oftentimes, I can find myself distracted or unable to remember or think clearly. I pray that you would aid me in all of those ways, that the preaching of the Word may not be a demonstration of the wisdom of any man, but a demonstration of the power of God. And we also pray that you would give us ears to hear, or we can be distracted. We can be hard-hearted. We can be uh, prone to hearing your word and in no way being affected by it. So will you help us this morning? Make our hearts ready to receive it, our lives eager to be adjusted in light of it. May you help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Though we might not think of it this way, the Bible is very much a book of warfare. In the beginning, after Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, the Lord says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we know, we hear that as a glorious statement and promise of our coming redemption at that point. That that Jesus Christ would come and redeem us as we had fallen into sin. But that statement is not simply a promise of redemption to God's people, it was a statement of threat to the serpent. And therefore, from that time forward, the devil has been doing everything he could do to stop the Redeemer from carrying out his mission, which would end up crushing the serpent's head. That's why when you read your Bible, you instantly see this warfare interacting. Cain kills Abel. This is why Ishmael is persecuting Isaac. It's why Jacob finds himself warring with Esau. As you go on a bit more, it's why the Egyptians take the Israelites and make slaves of them. It's why the Philistines are constantly attacking them. As you move forward a little more, as Tom made referenced to a few weeks ago, it's why Herod was having the two-year-old and under male Hebrew babies slaughtered at the birth of Christ because the serpent was doing everything he could to attempt to stop the redeeming work of the Messiah. And by God's grace, and we give thanks for it, he utterly failed. Jesus Christ was born, he lived a perfect life, he died for our sins, he was raised from the dead, he's ascended back to the Father's right hand from which where he reigns, and one day he will come back and fully and finally judge his enemies and save his people forever. Satan has been thwarted, he has been cast down from heaven, awaiting a day when he will meet his final judgment. But I don't want us to think, or to get the picture that because the enemy has been defeated, because he failed in stopping the redemptive work of Christ, that somehow he's idly sitting on the sidelines, kind of resigned, simply awaiting his judgment to come. No, rather, when Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, gives us a picture of what the enemy was about in the moment he was cast down because of Christ's redeeming work, Revelation 12, 17 says this: then the dragon became furious and went off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You see, from that point that Satan failed in stopping the redeeming work of Christ from being carried out, he turned his attention to attempting to devour the people of God. This is why the Scripture paints him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you and I will not be free from his assaults until that day Christ returns and he is thrown into the lake of fire, prepared for him from the foundation of the world. Now, it might not feel to us, especially maybe as we've read these last few chapters of Ephesians, it may not feel to us like we're in the midst of a cosmic war. When we read these last few chapters, the text just feels very practical, doesn't it? It feels very ordinary. It feels very earthy. This is just instructions about how to be a good husband or a good wife, how to be obedient children or good parents, how to be good employees or good employers, I mean, in one sense, you might get the picture as you read through Ephesians 5 in the first half of chapter 6 that any kind of thought or Satan of Satan or warfare or anything like that should just be a thought that is just cast from our minds. Just forget about it and focus on applying these practical insights, these practical exhortations for how to live a godly life. But if we're tempted to think that way, then we have to face head-on the fact that it's the very Apostle Paul who wrote these practical pictures for us of what being a good husband, wife, parent, child, employee, and employer looks like, he's the very one who ends this book talking about satanic attack and demonic warfare. Paul will not let us leave this book thinking when we read instructions about how to live the Christian life and walk worthy of our calling, Paul will not let us read that and somehow leave this book thinking that it is going to be smooth sailing. In fact, it is not even accurate to say, as opposed to smooth sailing, the waters are going to be rough and the waves are going to be high. No, Paul says, I want you to paint a picture stronger than that. It is not simply that we are in our wooden ship heading toward the celestial city, having to endure rough waters. Rather, what we have is an enemy ship from which they are firing cannonballs at us and arrows that are on fire seeking to land and catch on fire and sink our ship to make shipwreck of our faith as we head toward that day. And the call to us then, and the reason Paul writes about this, is not so that we will then despair but so that we might be equipped to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called, which is what the entirety of chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all about. This is how you walk worthy of the calling that Christ has made in your life. So as Paul then unfolds this picture of the kind of attack we're facing, of the warfare we're in the midst of, I want to do three things for us this morning that I think just work logically I want us to see the war that we're in. I want us to see what's expected of us in the midst of that war. And then I want us to understand how we're to walk in accordance with what is expected of us as believers. So one, let me just state the obvious from this text. We are at war against demonic forces. We are at war against demonic forces. Now, verses 10 and 11... Start with an exhortation to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And Paul's actually going to come back to that in verse 13 when he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. But because Paul's going to come back to that point and and paint it for us in detail, I simply want to seize on what he says in verse 12 as we begin. That is, the reason that we need to be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, Paul says, is because, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, when Paul ends in the heavenly places with that phrase, he does not mean... That everything he's described, these rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, uh, spiritual forces of evil, he does not mean that they're in the heavenly places, that is, removed from us, far away from us in heaven. He means the same thing we saw earlier in the book of Ephesians. By the phrase, in the heavenly places, he means simply existing in the invisible spiritual world around us. He means these demonic forces, these, these cosmic powers, these authorities and rulers, these demonic Enemies of ours are right in our midst. Now when Paul says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he's not saying that we will not have human enemies. We will have human enemies in this life. Those who stoned Stephen to death were flesh and blood. Those who would eventually take Paul's life, the very one who wrote this book, Tradition holds that Paul was beheaded. He was martyred for the faith. Those who cut his head off were flesh and blood enemies. So, Paul is not writing this to suggest we will not have human enemies in this life. What he's saying is this even our human enemies, there's something that's ultimately behind them and their actions. He's saying to us, our ultimate enemies are not flesh and blood, our ultimate enemies are these demonic forces, and demonic forces under the rule of Satan himself. That's why the very end of verse 11 mentions the schemes of the devil. In other words, you might think of it this way, Satan hates the people of God. He has always sought to devour them from the beginning, and that's what he is about now. He is about seeking to devour the people of God. And in fact, according to verse 11, he is scheming as to how he can bring down the people of God one by one. And he's been scheming this way now for thousands of years, watching all of us. He knows human nature. He knows what we're about. He's very good at this. So not only is the enemy after us, and not only is he scheming against us, but according to verse 12, it seems like, and I'm not going to divide, I don't know what the difference between rulers and authorities, cosmic powers versus spiritual forces, it just seems to be names, that, that perhaps it's ranks or orders, I don't know, but the idea seems to be that Satan is scheming and then unleashing hordes of demonic forces against us in order that he might bring us down. Now, how does he do this? How how do these demonic forces threaten us? In what ways do we bear Satan's schemes? Well, Paul doesn't flesh flesh it out here. Paul Paul doesn't say to us, let me describe to you precisely how Satan and his demons work. But I think by reading the rest of the Bible, we can have some ideas. I, I think it's fair to say simply this. One of the ways that Satan and his demons scheme and attack us are simply by suggesting thoughts and ideas that are sinful. Simply by suggesting thoughts and ideas that are sinful. We know two things about the devil from all of Scripture. One, he is an accuser. And two, he is a liar. The Bible repeatedly refers to him as the liar and the father of lies. So, one of the things, if we understand that he is an accuser and that he is a liar, both of those things suggest that he suggests to us lies that we might believe them or accusations that are are incorrect in order that we might hold on to them and believe them. Think of Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira, you remember the story, they sold their land they could have done anything they wanted with the proceeds from that. But they chose to say to Peter, this is all that we were given, although they were actually only giving a portion of it. And, and Peter calls them out for lying, and then the Lord smotes them. So they, they die instantly. But, but what the text actually says in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, when Peter speaks to Ananias, he says this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? The Holy Spirit. It seems that Peter says it was the devil who first suggested to Ananias this idea. Why don't you hold a lot back, but suggest to Peter that you're giving all of it? This idea then of a sinful enticement or or lies, sinful thoughts that that he can suggest to us seem to be one of the ways that he schemes. But I don't want to count out the fact that he can also suggest to us these lies or sinful enticement through others, because he can do that as well. It seems that one of the great enticements that the devil tried to tempt Jesus with was to bypass the cross. You remember when Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, we know that the Father's purpose is to give him all things, but but he is getting all things as he goes through the cross. But remember the devil is, is trying to convince him, why don't you bypass that, just bow down, worship me, and I'll give you all of these things. Right, the devil is, is, is constantly uh, lying in those ways and, and enticing us. It seems that this is what, again, he does even with Jesus. And we can also say one other thing. According to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, where Paul warns us, give no opportunity to the devil by letting our anger linger, it seems that there are certain ways that we can give the devil an opening to tempt us perhaps in even greater ways to sin. I'll say one of the things that I've noticed, one of the things I think that we've noticed as pastors, for us every Monday morning starts the same way. We get together, we work through, we name, we call out the name of every member of the church and just ask, were they here yesterday? Have we seen them recently? If not, we're gonna try to love them enough to run after them and see how they're doing and and one of the things i've been noticing after years of going through that is it seems that if you're one of those people who wakes up on a sunday morning and for you it is not already a decision that has been made i will gather with the saints on sunday if that becomes a toss up decision for you on sunday morning one of the things we've recognized and i do think this is the devil he is amazing and masterful at providing good and and genuinely good reasons for not coming to church. We've watched it over and over again. An individual, they wake up on Sunday morning, I don't know if I'll come, I'll make them, and then they have a flat tire, their dog's throwing up, right, whatever it is, and every time that happens, I say to myself, that's the enemy. The scripture says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I think we can turn that around Give the devil an opening, crack the door, and he'll kick it open. I remember a number of years ago talking to a girl who battled with depression, just overwhelming depressive thoughts, and I began talking to her because I knew it it was rare that I would see her on Sundays. And so I asked her, I said, when did these depressive thoughts come to you? And she said, actually, almost without exception, on Sunday mornings. And I said, I tell you what, why don't you, I'll pray for you, but why don't you? Her husband was with her. Why don't you all wake up every Sunday morning, saying, "No matter what, we're going to gather with the saints," and let's see what happens. And sure enough, those depressive thoughts fell to the side. I'm not saying if you have depression, this is going to make it go away. But I am saying the enemy, it seems from Ephesians 4:27, will look for a foothold, an opening. Are ways that he can scheme against us and so this is why you can listen to a sermon like Ephesians 5 22 33 or or 6:1 through 4 or 6 5 through 9 and you walk out of the door thinking to yourself I'm going to be a better husband I want to be a better wife I want to be a better parent I want to be a better child I'm, I'm going to be a better employer I'm going to be a better employee and you're so motivated and you have all of these thoughts and then Monday morning comes and all of a sudden all these contrary thoughts come to your mind Paul wants us to know one of the reasons those contrary thoughts to obedience to God's word comes to mind is because we have an enemy. And he is scheming and suggesting to us all kinds of ways that we can walk away. He is masterful at helping us recognize opportunities to sin, thinking through why that's a good idea, and then condemning us when we have sinned. That is his forte, he is excellent at that. Now, before we go into what we're supposed to do, let me just quickly as a side note say, I'm not saying this, and I don't think Paul writes this section in Ephesians to suggest that we're victims. In other words, do you remember how in the very beginning, Adam and Eve both played this game, but Eve specifically said, it was the serpent, right? The, the, the idea, the devil made me do it, that's as old as Genesis three. But Paul doesn't write Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 so that we may say, oh, it's the devil who makes me sin. No, I think the devil seizes on our sinful desires so that ultimately it is us, we are the ones who are responsible for our actions. We are the ones who are responsible for our sins. And if you want to know if God treats us as responsible beings, then contemplate the reality of hell. Absolutely, he treats us as responsible beings. But nor do I want us to think that that somehow we're, on neutral ground as if it's just you and me wrestling against our own desires. No, we have a ruthless enemy. What we sing earlier is true from a mighty fortress, is our God. This world is indeed filled with devils who threaten to undo us. So if that's the case, if we are at war against demonic forces, against demonic enemies under the rule of Satan himself, then what in the world are we supposed to do? That brings us to point number two. We're called to stand in faithfulness. We're called to stand in faithfulness. The idea that Paul wants us to stand is quite clear in this text. We see it repeated again and again and again. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, that is when Satan's onslaught is as great as it can get, and having done all, to stand firm. Verse 14 begins, stand, therefore. Stand, withstand, stand, stand. Paul says it again and again and again. Now, I think when we think of warfare, standing perhaps is not the most exciting imagery that we contemplate. Why would Paul say, in the midst of war, here's what I want you to do, stand. And having done all that we are to do, stand firm. I think there are probably two reasons why Paul uses the imagery of standing, perhaps instead of something else more aggressive that he might use. One, one, it's because the victory is already assured because of Christ. In other words, Paul doesn't stand us, send us forward in this text saying, your job is to make sure the enemy is defeated. No, 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 no. The enemy's defeat is sure and certain, not because of anything we do, but because of the work of Christ. The fatal blow has been dealt at the cross, and the Satan and his demonic forces, his minions, will be thrown into a lake of fire forever and ever, because Christ rules and reigns, because the crucified Lord is also the risen Lord. But I think there's another reason why he uses the imagery of standing. And it's because he's contrasting it with what the enemy wants us to do, which is to fall. You see, in First Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 12, Paul uses language. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, what the enemy wants of us is that we fall away from following the Lord, that we fall from walking in faithful obedience, that we do not make it to the celestial city, that we do not endure, that we do not persevere in faith and repentance. Satan is attempting to help make shipwreck of our faith. And by contrast, then, Paul is saying, rather than falling, I want you to stand and stand firm. And brothers and sisters, we stand as we do not chase after sin. We stand, men, when we read Ephesians 5, 33 and we live in such a way that we nourish and cherish our wives washing them with the word. Wives, you stand by submitting to your husband and respecting him. Children, you're right now standing as you obey your parents. Parents, you're standing by raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and fathers not provoking your children to anger. As employees, we are standing when we work as if we're working unto Christ and as employers, we stand by not threatening those under us. We stand by choosing not to chase after pornography in a day in which sexual sin is rampant. We stand by not abusing our bodies, chasing after images of who we think the world wants us to be in all of its sexualized ways. We stand by enduring to the end. Every time that a dear saint dies having endured in the faith, He or she is giving you a picture of what it looks like to stand. And this is what we are called to do. We are at war against demonic forces, and Paul says to us, I want you to stand and withstand everything the enemy throws at you. But this raises another question, doesn't it? How? In fact, let me frame the question this way. Satan is undoubtedly more powerful than us. His demonic forces are no doubt more powerful than we are. The whole first verse of a mighty fortresses our God that we sing is like a homage to the strength of the devil. Right? He is great in power. So if he is great in power and we are less than he is in power and he is embarking on an onslaught against us to devour us and see us fall and not endure, how in the world are we going to be able to stand? And here's the answer. Point number three, we stand by equipping ourselves with the strength of God's might. We stand by equipping ourselves with the strength of God's might. You see, the picture Paul paints here is, it is indeed true, Satan is more powerful than we are, but our God is more powerful than he is. And so, what Paul says is, God is making available the strength of his might to us. That's what he says in verses 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Or verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Paul specifically God makes His might and His strength available to you so that the strength, the one who is in us, is greater than the one who is in the world, and God is enabling us to overcome the one who schemes and attacks us and seeks to devour us. Now specifically, the image Paul uses here is of putting on God's armor. So it's as if we're accessing His strength and His might And the picture God uses is taking God's armor and clothing ourselves with it so that we might stand. Just to show you, that's the imagery. He said that in verse... at Eleven, put on the whole armor of God. He says in verse thirteen, put on the whole armor of God. In verses fourteen and through seventeen, he gives us all the full picture. Verse fourteen: Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and ask for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If we take all of these pieces, all of these realities, then we can say, he tells us we have God's armor in the form of truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. But here's a question. Where in the world is Paul getting this imagery? Now, I think if you read commentaries on the book of Ephesians, like I did this week, you might come to the conclusion that Paul was thinking through a Roman soldier. In fact, almost every commentary I read this week went in great detail through how the Roman soldier, what the, what the belt would have looked like and, and how he girded up his loins and what his breastplate would have looked like and how the shield was made. And you know what? I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. I don't think that Paul is writing this thinking to himself, how in the world can I picture this? Oh, I got a great idea. How about I picture a Roman soldier? I don't even think Paul does this, maybe chained to Roman soldier, looking at him going, let's see, what other piece of armor do you have there? Oh, that, okay, I'll use that too. And the reason I don't think Paul's doing that is because this imagery that he's using here of God's armor precedes the Roman soldier. All the way back in Isaiah and throughout the book of Isaiah, God will picture God's uh, Isaiah will picture God as being the divine warrior who is coming to redeem his people and judge his enemies. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4 and 5, you'll read this. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Now listen to this phrase. Isaiah, 59, or 50, or Isaiah 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Where the text differed earlier. Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. You see, Paul's not taking this imagery from the Roman soldiers, he's taking this imagery from the book of Isaiah. What he's saying is, God who is an arm, and who is an, you know, armed with his armor is defeating his enemies and what God is saying to us is all the armor that characterizes me, righteousness and faithfulness and truth, I want you to take that and arm yourself with that as well. That's the image. And so what I'm not going to do for the rest of the sermon is walk through how a Roman soldier would adorn himself. What I'm going to do is walk through how each of these glorious realities he holds up, each, each reality he holds up, assigning it to a piece of armor, just as righteousness and faithfulness was a belt for God or a breastplate or a sal- helmet, uh, salvation, a helmet. And I'm going to walk through each of these and see how we might employ each of these to withstand the schemes of the devil. Let me say something before I do that as well. It may be, it may be, that you and I want to start every day thinking through each of these. How's truth, you know, righteousness, faith, et cetera, et cetera, so that we might equip ourselves. But I don't think the idea is kind of dress yourself with the armor of God in the morning and then you're good to go. I think what Paul is saying is, as Satan constantly schemes and attacks us, if we're going to withstand his schemes and bear his fiery darts, and still stand, here are the weapons that you need to employ. Here are the things that you need to arm yourselves with. In in each and every moment we go through life. So let's take them one at a time. First, we have truth. Paul says in verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. That is to say, one of the pieces of armor that we need to arm ourselves with throughout each and every day is remembering God's truth so that we might be, withstand the lies of the enemy. The enemy constantly assaults us with lies, and this is one of the reasons why we should answer his lies with truth. Now, I know we've started a new year, and one of the things that you may have done is started a new Bible reading plan whereby you're gonna read through the Bible in a year or read through the Bible in two years or something like that. I wanna encourage you If you're doing well so far, keep up with it. Look, it is an anomaly in world history that believers have had a copy of the Bible they can carry around with them or have in their home. So I I, I think it's true. The people of God mainly have relied upon hearing the preaching of God's Word. One of the reasons for that is because throughout much of history, believers have been illiterate. And so if you're going to hear God's word, you need to hear it read to you. You need to hear it preached to you. And it's good then that we gather around and hear the word of God preached. But I also want to tell you, brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity, unlike most of our fellows brothers and sisters throughout world history, to take the Bible and read it every day. So that we might know truth. So that when the enemy speaks lies, we might combat it with truth. And then we go forth speaking truthfully. We do not give way to make ourselves look like the one who is a liar, one who is the father of lies. So, so one of the weapons, one of the pieces of armor that we're going to need as we walk out this door, and Satan and his dominions attack us with our onslaught is we need to arm ourselves with truth, remembering truth so that we might combat his lies. Second, he mentions righteousness. And having put on the breastplate, of righteousness. Now, I think there are two ways we arm ourselves with righteousness. One of them is by remembering that we have been credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The reason I say that is because the devil is an accuser. So I promise you, if it doesn't happen tomorrow morning, it will happen sometime. The devil, perhaps this week, perhaps next week, but at some point, and maybe all of those moments and days, the devil will will accuse you. It may be tomorrow morning you wake up and the first thing the devil suggests to you is that God wants nothing to do with you. That you are condemned. Maybe he will even say, I know you confessed your sin, but do you really think that you're forgiven? And then what you need to do is two things. One, combat it with truth. First John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you combat it by remembering the Lord's righteousness has been credited to you. In other words, we do not stand by saying to the devil, I really am better than you say I am. When the devil says you deserve death and hell, you know what you can say? I know I do. I know. If I fought on your terms, I would lose. But here's the glorious reality. I could never do enough to measure up. That's why Jesus Christ had to live a perfect life for me. And his perfect righteousness has been credited to my account. His righteousness has been imputed to me. So I stand clothed not in my own righteousness, which you devil note is lacking, and I agree. I stand clothed in his righteousness. And on that final day, I will be received into the kingdom of my Father, not because I've done enough good or avoided enough bad, but because he did for me. That's how we defend ourselves. We withstand his attacks with righteousness. And then, having been credited with Christ's righteousness, we then go forth and we live righteous lives, don't we? We walk in obedience to Jesus Christ living in righteousness. Third, we arm ourselves with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Paul says in verse 15, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given, by the gospel of peace. Now, why is it that Paul attaches the gospel to shoes? I think it's because he's also picking up this imagery from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah says in verse seven, beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. It's a text Paul picks up in Romans 10. We know that, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, well, how do they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless we preach? And how will we preach unless we are sent? That's why it's written, Paul says, beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So I think the reason Paul ties this to shoes and then readiness is because what he's saying is you need to constantly arm yourselves with a readiness to proclaim the gospel a readiness to speak the good news. I go out into this world where Satan's going to attack and throw his fiery darts and his devils are going to scheme against me and perhaps convince me or attempt to convince me that I ought not to open my mouth, give me all kinds of reasons why it's good for me not to speak the gospel. And yet I arm myself every day with a readiness of the gospel. Why does he say the gospel of peace? Because I think we all know if anything, When we preach the gospel, it might not bring peace to us. I mean, you may go forth and preach the gospel and get killed for it. So why does Paul say the gospel of peace? It's because of this. It is true, especially in light of what we're looking at this morning, that we have an enemy in the devil. But you know what the world's biggest problem is? It's not that Satan is trying to pull them toward hell even as he has us. It's not that the enemy has blinded their eyes. The world's biggest problem is as sinners with unrepentant hearts, they have an enemy in God himself. They are bearing his wrath. And if they die in their sins, they will not face the wrath of the devil. They will face the wrath of the Lamb. Their biggest problem is that they're under the wrath of God. And the reason, I think then, that Paul says the gospel is a gospel of peace is because what we're proclaiming, the good news we're proclaiming, is that no, you're an enemy of God, under His wrath, awaiting the day of wrath, when you will be cast into a lake of fire and be tormented day and night without end forever and ever, there is a way that you can be reconciled to God. There's a way that you can have peace with God. And that peace comes because God sent His Son to live and die for our sins, to be raised on the third day, so that if you repent of your sins and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be reconciled to Him. Your enemy will become your Savior. Instead of bearing the wrath of the Lamb, you will bear His mercy and grace. And I think that's why Paul says a readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace is the only message of the world can have peace with god is through the gospel fourth we arm ourselves with faith paul says uh, in verse 15 and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, verse 16 in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one we've already mentioned that the sa- that the devil constantly cast to us lies. This is what he did in the very beginning. He's the to Adam and Eve, look, God is holding out on you. The reason he doesn't want you to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because he wants to hold out on you. There's great wisdom to be gained and he doesn't want you to have what's good for you. He's full of lies and one of the things that we have to do to combat his lies is we have to have faith in the promises of God. And I think the reason Paul uses that phrase, in all circumstances, take the shield of faith, is perhaps not because faith is is more precious than righteousness or truth or the gospel itself. But I think he's reminding us you are constantly going to need to trust in the promises of God if you're going to uh, withstand the attacks of the devil. You have to constantly trust in his promises. At the end of last year, I'd mowed some grass and set aside money and so our family went out to eat, kind of Deuteronomy 14 style. And we ate together so that we might say, so that I might say to my family, this meal is a tangible reminder to us that God has met our needs this year. And we ate and we drank and we got dessert and I felt kind of miserable at the end of it. And And it was a beautiful evening. It was was really one of my highlights of this last year. I was just sitting with my my family, eating and drinking and giving thanks to the Lord. And I just recounted as we were sitting there, the Lord met our needs with this. He met our needs here. He met our needs there. He met our needs. This last year, He met our needs so abundantly. He enabled us to, to, our needs were, were met. We were able to give more than we've ever given. He was just so gracious. In the first week of 2024, I was praying, and the audience that came to me. Yeah, but what if some of those grants that you got last year for college don't come through? And what if this happens? And what if you're not enabled to give as much? One, I think that it wasn't just that those thoughts were simply coming from within me. I think that I had an enemy who was going, hey, how about this? Hey, how about this? And those things are real. I don't say that to you because I say that, and my thought was instantly like, "Oh, how foolish!" No, I don't judge the Israelites for walking through the Red Sea and then going, "Yeah, but how are we going to eat?" I'm as foolish as they are. And in that moment, I had to stop and say to myself, "Trust in the promises." of God. He says, seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added to you. He knows what you need before you even ask them. As far as giving, he says, if you want to sow bountifully, he will supply seed for sowing. That you will abound in every good work. I could go on and on and on, but this is where the Christian life is lived. This is where the fight is fought. There's a reason why it's called the fight of faith. We are fighting to believe and trust in the promises of God rather than the lies of the enemy. Fifth, he says salvation. In verse 16, or verse 17 rather, and take the helmet of salvation, which I think again refers to the whole of our salvation. That is, yes, we are remembering that we have been saved, but we also hold out the reality that one day we will be fully and finally saved. You see, God has saved us. He's forgiven us of our sins. We've been made children of God. We have eternal life. But it's also the case that all the glorious realities of our salvation, we've not experienced all of them yet. I'm still waiting for the day that I'll have a resurrected body. I'm waiting for the day that I'll be freed from sinning altogether as we sing in, in There is a Fountain, Saved to sin no more. I told Lilith, I think that's what I want on my headstone when I die. Saved to sin no more. What a glorious reality. One of the reasons I think that when Paul uses the imagery of the helmet of salvation, one of the reasons I think that Paul has in mind not just the fact that I have been saved, but looking to my future salvation, is because when he uses the same imagery in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, he doesn't simply write the helmet of salvation, but the hope of the helmet of salvation. That is, I think he's speaking of salvation saying, Look to what is coming. What is our hope? Because as we endure in this life, Satan's attacks. It can feel very easy to say, I want to give up. I want to quit fighting. And Paul says, don't do it. You're almost home. Keep hoping. It's coming. And then finally, in our list, he gives us the Bible, the Word of God, Scripture. He says, "In the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is the Spirit-inspired Bible that we have. Again, knowing the Bible is so crucial. David says, in, or rather the psalmist says in Psalm 119 verse 11, I hide your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. What did Jesus do when the enemy attacked him and threw out all kinds of lies and temptations and enticements? Jesus noted what the Bible says and trusted in those things. We trust in the Bible. This is then what Paul's getting at. He's saying, as you go through life and as the devil attacks, these are your pieces of armor. It is faith and truth and righteousness and the scripture and the gospel and so on and so forth. And then he mentions one more thing we do to withstand. In verse 18, he mentions prayer. Now, what's interesting is Paul doesn't tie prayer to any kind of imagery of armor. He just says, pray. I think the reason why is because this is one of the main ways we fight. Specifically, Paul says in verses 18 through 20, praying. At all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then he asks specifically for him, that God might open his mouth to boldly proclaim the gospel, which God has called him to do. Now notice, in that exhortation to pray, Paul mentions the word all four times. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. Being ready at all times to pray, having being ready at any moment to to cry out to the Lord, to call out to him in the spirit. Now it's true in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, I think Paul uses praying in the spirit in that context. I mean praying in tongues, because he'll say something like, I pray in the spirit and then I pray with my mind. In this context, I think he means just praying with the enablement of the spirit. In other words, it's I think much broader than that. He's just saying it all the time, pray recognizing we're enabled by the Spirit to do so. He says, with all prayer and supplication, that is, there's all kinds of ways we can pray. We cry out to the Lord for our need, we lament to Him, we praise Him, but let your life be characterized by prayer. With all perseverance, don't grow weary in praying. It's hard. The enemy will help you think of a thousand things you should be doing besides praying. Hey, have you checked that email? Hey, what was that noise on your phone? They persevere. And then finally, for all the saints, and Paul mentions himself. Now it's that last note, that last qualification, making supplication for all the saints, that I think is so helpful to us. Because if I didn't note this, if Paul didn't note these last words there, we might get this idea that you and I go out of this door as individuals Against a horde of demonic forces who want to see you fall. But I don't think that's the picture. It is true we're going out this door against a horde of demonic forces who want to see us fall. But we go out of these doors as the united body of Christ. In other words, when the Lord called us out of this world, He then called us to one another. And he says to us, not only do you take up faith and righteousness and truth and the gospel and the helmet of salvation and and the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, but Paul says, I also want you to be praying for one another. Pray for all the saints. One of the glorious gifts you and I have in this life are the prayers of one another. And so one of the things that you can do this week and I can do this week is as I'm in the midst of warfare, I can stop and pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Just last week, a brother said to me, I've got an issue coming up, I'm gonna face something, I feel like the devil's attacks, would you pray for me? I prayed for him. He reached out to me later. It went well, thanks for praying. I, I, I don't take that lightly. We engaged in war together and the enemy was resisted. He stood firm. He withstood in the evil day. Brothers and sisters, this is our task as well. We are at war. And the call for us is to stand, taking up these pieces of God's armor, arming ourselves with what is characteristic of God himself, and then praying for one another so that we might walk in faithfulness. And so this morning, as we come to the table I want it to be for us a corporate declaration that we're not only saying to the enemy in his face, if you will, this is my answer to your accusations. Oh, we're saying that. We're saying that to every demon who is present today. You accuse us, this is our answer. He gave his body and he shed his blood. Go deal with him. But we're also saying we eat and drink of this meal together. Because the devil is not merely attacking one of us and bearing with one of us, He is attacking the bride and body of Christ. And we walk together. We have linked arms and we will aid each other as we're on our way to the celestial city equipped by the grace and armor of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come to the table this morning, first if you're not a believer, I've shared the gospel multiple times that Christ lived and died and was raised. I want to speak to you again, this gospel of peace. Right now, if you don't repent of your sins and you don't place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you were to die right now, you would face the merciless wrath of God. All of those who do not repent will be thrown into the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels, the devil and his demons. You will bear his same fate, tormented day and night without rest. But the glorious reality is you don't have to die in your sins. This morning you can repent of your sins. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Be reconciled to God. Have peace with God and have eternal life. You can do that right now. If you would like to talk to me or one of the pastors more about that, one of your neighbors more about that, your neighbors are right beside you, your pastors, I'll be up here in the front, we'll eventually all, will try to make our way to the foyer, you'll run into the pastors on your way out. We would love to talk to you about that, but I wanna plead with you if you're not a believer to place your faith in Christ, and then I'm gonna encourage you to make that public by being baptized, professing your faith and becoming part of a local church. They have individuals who will walk you, love you, and pray for you. If you are a believer, profess your faith in baptism, you're in good standing with a gospel preaching church, and I want to invite you to come to the table with us this morning. We're going to come just row by row, pastor here, pastor here, pastor over there. You'll take one stack of two cups, top one with juice, bottom with bread, return to your seat, and we'll eat, and we'll drink together. And as we do so, we'll remind ourselves that we are almost home. Our salvation is sure. The hope is certain. And so let us endure by his grace until then. Let's take a moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table this morning.